Well, how would you like to uh, walk into church on Sunday morning and open up your bulletin and find out that you're teaching Sunday school? <laughs> Bible study, Ron Biggs. I said, oh, man. Uh, actually, that, that's not the case. The pastor did ask me about, uh, oh, about a month ago, I guess, if I would be interested in teaching the four weeks while he has the uh, newcomers class going on. And I said, I'll be interested in teaching, but not for four weeks. Oh, he said, you don't want to do all four? I said, no, on the last two weeks, I'm going to be in Hawaii, and I'm not giving that up to teach. So I'm going to be here for two weeks. And, of course, when he asked me to teach, it's always sort of agonizing for me because it's, will you teach? And it's left open as to whatever you would like to teach. And, and I always have a problem with that. The first thing that came to my mind was, oh, we could do a survey of the minor prophets. My wife says to me, don't do something that's going to take longer than the time that you've got allotted because I have a problem with, I try to give you too much in too short a time. So this time I'm going to try not to do that. What I've done is I've narrowed it down to the book of Acts. <laughs> Actually, we're not going to do a survey of Acts. We're just going to breeze through the book of Acts. I've narrowed it down even farther than that to... What I want to do with you is take a look at, in the book of Acts, the church. Of course, if you, you all know that uh, the beginning of the church was in the book of Acts, the church as we know it today. Um, the church has existed for centuries. The uh, Jewish people have always had their synagogues. But church as such has, is something that is is relatively new from the first century on the church as we know it today. So what I'd like to do is just take a look with you at uh, the book of, if you would turn to the book of Acts, we are going to be, I am going to be reading some passages from the book of Acts, some of the messages there that were given by Paul and, and Stephen and Peter in reverse order, uh, but uh, I'd like for you to follow along if you like. If not, I will be reading some pretty lengthy passages, but we'll, we'll get through those. Uh, let me just start by saying, how did we ever come up with the name church in the first place? Um, and I'm not sure that, I'm not totally convinced that church is the best word that we could have come up with from uh, the Greek, which was ekklesia, ekklesia which is taken from two Greek words, ek and kaleo. Um, ek means to out of, and kaleo means to call. So basically we are the ecclesia. We are those who are called out. We're called out of the world to something different, and that is to be a body that is bound together, joined together, because of the cross, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Uh, and, and it's a good term. Um, the reason I say I'm not totally convinced that it's, it's the best is because in, in the classical Greek, ecclesia really did not have a whole lot to do with a religious organization. It was more of a political term than it was a, uh, a, a religious term. And, uh, of course, then we also have the discussion about whether we desire to be religious or whether we want to really be followers of Christ. So, you know, it, it just opens up all kinds of things to, to you. But uh, we're going with what it is. We are the church, which is uh, recognized in the New Testament 
as the ecclesia, and uh, we, we, we don't find that term in the New Testament until we get to the book of Acts, with the exception of Matthew. There are a couple of, couple of uh, passages in the book of Matthew where the term ecclesia is used, and it is used by Christ. Jesus himself was the one that used the term ecclesia. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, and I'll read that for you there. You don't need to turn to it necessarily. But in chapter 16 and verse 18 of um, Matthew, uh, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And Peter identified him correctly as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So Christ used the first, the first instance that we have of the word church or ecclesia in the New Testament is in the book of Matthew. And then uh, just a couple of, uh, couple of chapters over in, in Matthew chapter 18 and verse, um, well, starting at verse 15. The parable of the lost sheep here, the brother who sins against you. Christ is speaking again. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to, tell, to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So there we have two references by Christ to the church. And it is a, a body of believers then that has been called together. Um, however, in, in the book of Matthew, there was no church as we know it today. The church would have been basically the synagogue. But it was understood by Jesus' use of the word ecclesia that he was talking about a group that was uh, an organized group and followers. When I decided, oh, a couple of weeks ago, I guess, that I was going to, uh, to speak this morning on the church, a, a brief look at the beginning of the church, um, I decided the best place to do that would be in the book of Acts because that's where the church begins and that's where we have a lot of the, the beginning um, since that time, I've tried to read the book of Acts every day so that I could familiarize myself with it because if you're going to teach it, you ought to know a little bit about it, I hope. Uh, and uh, reading it every day, I feel like I know a little bit about it, but it's probably just about this much on a scale of 10 miles. <laughs> um, and I find that when I'm, when I'm asked to teach that I learn a lot more than you do. It, it, there's no way I could, I could tell you everything that I have learned in the past three weeks studying to prepare for this class. But uh, there's so many diversions. I'd go through the book of Acts, you read this, you read that, and you say, oh, I need to know some more about that. So you go back in the Old Testament, you read some there, and you just you, you, you go so far. So if I go off on any rabbit trails this morning, Somebody say, hey, aren't we supposed to be looking at the church? 
Uh, so there you go. I did want to do, I, I'm going to digress for just one minute, and then we'll get back on it. I did, I, I thought about uh, very quickly doing a study on the Holy Spirit. But I thought, boy, spiritology, there's no way in two weeks I can even, I can even start to do that. So I dismissed that from my mind completely. But I, I, I personally feel that uh, we today do not make enough of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We don't acknowledge enough, I think, the, the, the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, as, we'll, as we will see in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit, of course, was promised to the disciples, was promised to believers by Jesus himself. He said he was going to give us a comforter. And uh, the comforter then, in reality, is the Holy Spirit. And uh, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives the moment we believe. He's there. He's always with us. Uh, the early church had a visible manifestation of the Spirit coming upon them. Today we don't have that. But we do have the Spirit within us. As soon as we believe, the Holy Spirit enters us and He never leaves us. Um, and, and coupled with my belief, I guess I might say, or my thought, my theory, that we don't really give the Holy Spirit enough credit today, uh, part of that probably is because some churches that really overdo the Holy Spirit are, are looked at in, in a different light than we are looked at. So I, I don't want to be guilty of being in two camps at once because I'm not. But I really believe that the Holy Spirit is is sort of downgraded today in the lives of most Christians. Um, I, I would not ask you to take my word for that. I would simply ask you to do a study on your own and see what it is that the Holy Spirit is doing in and for you today and see if he should not really deserve a whole lot more credit than we give him. Uh, just a personal little thing. That was for free. You don't have to pay extra for that. Um, okay, so we go back to the book of Acts then. And we see immediately in the book of Acts, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, I find a couple of interesting things here. And that is one, who was Theophilus? Well, we're really not quite sure who Theophilus is. Um, some think it was a, a, an individual, and it could very well have been. I, I don't know. Scholars have have scholars aren't agreed on really who Theophilus is. Theophilus is a term that means a lover of God or a friend of God, and some think that the author of the book of Acts was writing this to those believers in Christ to encourage them. Some will say that it was written to a person by the name of Theophilus. I, I'm, I'm not ready to tell you which is which. I, to be honest with you, I really don't know. But I do know that tie Theophilus in this book to the former treatise that he had written. We go back to the book of Luke, and we find that the, the same name is mentioned there, Theophilus. So from that, we, we surmise that the author of the book of Acts was Luke, the writer of the Gospel Luke. And that's accepted throughout by the majority of the scholars. Uh, there's always some... <laughs> 
there are always some who will say, no, that's not right. Just to be controversial. No, they're not really just being controversial. They have other things that they have looked at, and they, they say this, this is the way it is. I accept the fact that the book of Luke and the book of Acts were written by Luke. Just go from there. So we are now in chapter 1, and we see also that uh, it says, Until the day he was taken up to heaven, speaking of Christ, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, I find also interesting in this particular verse that up until this time, for the most part, the followers of Christ, or the twelve, let's go back to the twelve disciples, we call them. They were always called disciples, the twelve disciples. On occasion, they were called apostles. What's the difference between an apostle and a disciple? Anyone want to venture a guess? Or, or a statement? Yes, Zach. Yep. Did everybody hear that? There were quite a few disciples that they were talking about in the, in the scriptures. They're talking about, in one place they talked about a group of 70, in another place they talked about 120, in another place they talked about 500, and they were all called disciples. Well, to boil it down to a, a really basic split between the two, a disciple basically is a follower. An apostle is one who is appointed or sent, one who is sent out. So the disciples in their earthly ministry when they were following Christ basically were followers of Christ. They did what he instructed them to do. Um, they did perform some miracles. They, they did perform some uh, acts that were beyond recognition humanly. But uh, for the most part, they were, they were followers, and Jesus did the majority of the work. But when Jesus knew that he was going to be leaving the earth in a short time, he told his di- disciples, he said, here's, here's what I'm leaving you to do. And I'm not going to leave you by yourself to do it, but I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to help you in your work. And then at that point, they became the active um, participants in their ministry. Prior to that, they were sort of passive. They just went and did what Jesus told them to do. Now they're becoming very active, as we'll see in the book of Acts. But uh, as we look and we see, I I didn't make up any kind of an outline to give you, but I I would ask that you look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, because basically this is a pretty good outline of, of... the book of Acts and how it's broken down in one way. In uh, chapter eight or chapter one, verse eight says, "But Jesus speaking, you will receive power to his disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth." So if we were to need some kind of an outline, and that would even follow as we study about the early church, I would say from verse number 8, we use Jerusalem as our first point. We use Judea and Samaria as our second point, And we use the, the ends of the earth or the uttermost part of the earth as our, as our third point. So we could break it down into Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria, and then the rest of the world as they knew it at that time. 
So here we have this promise from Jesus, and this is, uh, this is post-resurrection, meaning Christ has already been buried and rose from the grave. This is a post-resurrection appearance that he has made to his disciples now, and he's telling them. Remember that after he rose, he spent about 40 days on earth and then uh, went back to heaven. And this is during that time, right at the end of it, that, that he's telling his disciples, this, this is what I'm going to have you do. Uh, verse 9 says, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken away from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then in verse 12 it says, When they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath's day walk from the city, then they returned. So now they're going back to the city. It says when they arrive, they go back to the upper room where they were staying, in a, in a room in a house where they were staying. And then it gives their names. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So they were not the only ones that were in this in this room. Um, there were Mary, the mother of Christ, Jesus' brothers, and some other, it says, the women. Uh, we believe they can be identified by studying certain other passages. I'll not go into who I think they were necessarily, because that's not... That's not essential to the, to the look that we're going to do on the church. But there were others there that were present in the upper room. Um, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers. Peter, Peter became the, the leader of the apostles, basically. Uh, he stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. And he goes into why Judas betrayed Christ. And uh, before we... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not actually going to look at Judas either, but I want to give us a little bit of a warning here. And that is that we, we really can't be too hard on Judas because Judas did what God had appointed Judas to do. Um, it's unfortunate that, that it had to be Judas, but if not, it would have been someone else. But God selected someone, and through the workings and the dealings, Judas was the one that betrayed Christ. And, of course, Judas was immediately sorry after his death, uh, did go out and hang himself. Uh, but my, my, question, my question to me and to you would be, what if we were... Judas. What, what, how would we have handled that? And we just don't know. But then take that a step farther, and I think, you know, I'm a lot like Judas in a lot of ways. Um, after what the Lord has done for me in my life, after what he did on the cross for me, and after all that he's doing through me in the Holy Spirit... There are times in my life that I basically turn my back on him. 
and do things that I know are contrary to what he would have me to do. I think we probably all fit that same category, and I think we need to evaluate ourselves and our lives in in light of that. I don't deserve salvation, but it was provided for me because God loved me. Because of that love, I need to try to be a good follower. I need to be a good representative of him while I'm here on this earth. As our pastor says many, many times, we need to reflect. We need to be a mirror that others might see in us a reflection of God. Um, Judas wasn't. Sometimes we aren't. But we need, to be, we need to be very careful about that. We need to think about that. So the disciples are back in the room, the upper room, and they stay, they don't stay in the room locked in for 10 days, but they're there for a matter of 10 days or so. I'm sure they're going about their business, their commission that God has given them to do. But then when we get to verse number 2, or chapter number 2, I'm sorry, chapter 2 in Acts, it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And I believe that place is also this upper room that they retreated to after Christ went to heaven. So they're there all in this one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So this is a filling of the Holy Spirit that came upon the disciples and those present in that upper room. The Spirit of God came down in a visible manifestation, a howling wind, tongues of fire that it doesn't say went into them or rested on them, but appeared over their heads. And that was just the... the I think it was an outward manifestation of the, the coming of the Spirit so that each of them knew what was happening. I don't think there was any doubt in their minds. They had been promised that the Holy Spirit was going to come. And I think they knew immediately that that is what happened to them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says then that they spoke in tongues and as the Spirit enabled them. Uh, and the reason for the speaking in tongues is given as we start in, in verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem... God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Why are all these Jews gathered in, in Jerusalem at this particular time? Well, remember that... Maybe you don't remember. I'm sure you do, most of you. Pentecost was a celebration that the Jews had in their calendar. This was a, a feast of harvest that they were this, this particular time. Uh, Pentecost today, we measure Pentecost by Easter. Of course, there was no Easter then, the first... The first century when Christ died and rose, but that's when we celebrate Easter. But Pentecost happens 50 days after. And it was this event that all these, all these Jews from all over the, the near and far were uh, gathered in Jerusalem for this celebration, Pentecost. Uh, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. 
Utterly amazed, they ask, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? So this giving of the gift of tongues that they received at Pentecost was for the purpose of praising God and glorifying God and that everyone around would be able to understand them. Medes, Persians, wherever they were from, Jews that were gathered there for this, for this uh, celebration, harvest. They, they, they each heard in their own language. Of course, if I speak English and I go to German and the majority of the people there are speaking German, well, it sounds, pardon the expression, sounds crazy to me, sort of dumb. I mean, why can't they just speak English and everybody can understand what's going on? But they all understand each other. If I speak and they don't understand English, they know that there's something wrong with me. <laughs> if I speak, they know there's something wrong with me. But here all these people were there, and they were hearing all these different languages being spoken. Um, a whole crowd of people there, and some of them got to wondering about, well, what's, what's going on here? Um, utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Shouldn't they be speaking the same language? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native tongue? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said... They're drunk. <laughs> They've had too much wine. That's what's going on. They're just jibber-jabber, you know. Nobody can understand what they're saying. Well, everyone who was speaking were understood by some. Not by all, but each heard in their own native tongue. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that's a quotation from the Old Testament prophet Joel. Peter goes on and says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. 
Brothers, Peter goes on, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Though he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies footstools for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Peter, who we know from looking at him in other passages, was a very rash individual, ready to take matters into his own hands at times, at other times very submissive. But you have to bear in mind that Peter was a fisherman. In the book of Acts, we find places where he was being questioned by the Sanhedrin, the official religious party of the day. And, and, and they sat in wonderment and amazement at the fact that here is here's a simple man. He's a fisherman. How does he know all this stuff? Where does he get all these things? Where did that knowledge come from? And of course, we know that Peter was speaking in the Holy Spirit. Um, very effective speech that he just made because he went all the way back to the Old Testament prophets. And of course, all the people who were there were Jews. They were all familiar with the prophets. They, they knew what he was speaking of. When he started with the prophets, I think what he was doing was, without even trying to do it, giving credibility to what he was, what he was about to tell them. He went back, he used the prophets, he used David, the, the, the king of Israel, and, of course, Jesus was from the line of David. But he used incidents from the Scriptures as they knew them. Remember that at this point, there is no New Testament. The Scriptures at this point was just the Old Testament that they had. Um, but they, they were all very well versed in the Old Testament. They knew the Scriptures. And what he was doing is using this and showing them that the Christ that they had just crucified was indeed the Messiah that they were all looking forward to coming. However, how would you like to be a part of a crowd that is feeling pretty good? You're here in Jerusalem for a celebration, the Feast of Harvest. Um, everything seems to be going along pretty good. And all of a sudden, somebody stands up in the crowd, or this group of individuals start speaking, some of them jibber-jabber to, to you and me, because we wouldn't understand what they were saying. But there were others in the crowd that understood it. But uh, here we are celebrating, really feeling good about what's going on. And all of a sudden, this one gets up and he says, Oh, let me tell you what's going on here. 
He said, you are guilty of the blood of Christ. Well, you know, if I'm part of that crowd, I'm probably going to think to myself, wait a minute. Hold on, I didn't have anything to do with that. However, that brings me down to our 20th century. And I, I, I told myself that I wouldn't say this, but I'm going to do it anyway. We have an election coming up here in a few weeks. If you don't vote, don't complain about what happens after it's over. If you do vote and the other party gets in, don't complain about who gets in. It's all ordained of God. God's hand is still upon the world today. But that's basically what's going on here. I, 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 I didn't take part in, in the killing of Christ. Well, you know, if I was part of the crowd and I didn't speak up, then basically I did take part in, in the killing of Christ. But uh, because Peter just sort of laid it on the line. He says, you're, you're guilty. You're guilty of the blood of Christ. Um, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. It says in verse 40, save yourselves from, from this corrupt generation. Very effective message that day because in verse 41 it tells us those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow. Talk about an evangelist. He gives a message and 3,000 or so are saved as a result of, of what he's just shared with them. 3,000 were added to their number. Added to whose number? The church. <laughs> Where did the church come from? When the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost and filled the disciples in the upper room, we view that today as the beginning of the church as we know it in the 20th century. The body of believers who are called out of the world, and if we're called out of the world, we're called to something else, and that something else then is that we're a follower of Christ. And as a follower of Christ or a disciple, which we are, by virtue of the fact that we have accepted Jesus Christ into our life. He has changed us, so we are disciples, but it's not the end there. We are to go on and do an active work of testifying and witnessing about what God has done in our lives, about what God can do in other lives, and therefore we become apostles. We're now sent out. So we, we're, we're called out of the world. We're called into this relationship that we have with Jesus Christ and his followers or the ecclesia the church and this is where the church started wow can you imagine can you imagine today if we were able to go to some place where there was a large crowd of people for gathered for whatever reason and uh, someone pastor Ken Zach Matt you me, were able to get up and to speak and see 3,000 souls saved in one day. Is that impossible? No, it's not impossible. It's no more impossible now than it was for Peter back at the day of Pentecost. It's still possible. The same Holy Spirit that filled Peter and the other disciples is the one that came into our hearts and fills us. Okay, I, I, I mentioned that uh, 
at the very beginning that I, I sometimes think we downplay the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives today, and that's one way I think that we do it. Um, I, I can't do that. I, I, I can't go out and talk to other people about Jesus Christ. I'm, I, I just can't do that. Yes, you can. Yes, I can. Yes, I should. Yes, you should. We have that same Holy Spirit filling our lives today that they had then. Peter stood up, 3,000, boom, saved one day. I say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I'm sure that's what they said back there too. Well, we go on from there. There are other things that are happened. We, we find in chapter 3 that Peter heals a crippled beggar. And then uh, in chapter 3, verse 11, we find another, another great sermon by Peter, and he goes all the way back to, in this sermon, talking about Abraham, our father, Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, Moses, going right on down the line through the history of Israel, speaking to, again, people that are gathered, all Jews, they, 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 know, they know what's going on here, and Peter is rehearsing with them these things. And he says, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Because of this speech, Peter and John are called before the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is the ruling body of religious leaders made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees, two different sects that were prominent in the day. The Sanhedrin was a group of 71 individuals who, who basically were in charge religiously. Okay? Um, we don't have anything like, well, we do have things like that today, but not, we don't, our, our particular church and belief. Uh, but the, the Sanhedrin made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were both groups of Jewish believers. The Pharisees were what we would call today legalistic. They, 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 they made sure that the law was fulfilled. Every jot and tittle of the law must be obeyed and must be fulfilled. And that was their basic philosophy of life. The law was given and we, we have to obey it. The Sadducees, on the other hand, felt that the law was also valid, but they, they had a little bit of a problem. They believed a little bit differently than the Pharisees. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were called sad, you see. I thought that was a good line myself when I heard it. Back in Bible college, our professors told us that one. Emmert. Do you remain, remember Emmert? <laughs> yeah. That was one of his lines. That's why they were called sad, you see. But anyway, basically, 
that those were the two groups that made up the the Sanhedrin, and uh, they were they were the ruling body. Well, they called Peter and and John before them. The priests and captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. All he's doing is sharing the truth. The next thing you know, he's in court for telling the truth. Well, I think it was a little more than just that. I think there was a, a tinge of jealousy there. Later on in the book of Acts, it, it tells us that the, the Pharisees were jealous because they were, they were having such success in their ministry. But uh, they seized Peter and John because it was evening. They put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Wow. Another great evangelistic event in the life of Peter. Peter, keep on preaching. And, of course, that was his, that was his task. He knew that, and he was going to follow that. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, the other men of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Then he goes on to give another discourse on what was happening. As a result, they were basically turned loose. Go back to where you came from, but don't preach anymore about this Jesus. Well, they're going to preach some more, and we're going to look at it next week, because I think our time is up. Next week, we'll continue here in the book of Acts, chapter 4. We'll go through and we'll look at Stephen, who was the first martyr, recognizes the first martyr. And then we'll look some at the life of Paul and the work that he did for the cause and the sake of Jesus Christ. Let me just leave you with this parting thought. Peter, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, Ron Biggs, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, insert your name, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, it's, it's hard for me to think that I, I'm in the same category as Peter and Paul and some of these great giants of the faith. But because the, the Lord selected me, He loved me, He selected me, He filled me with the Holy Spirit, and He expects of me to do the kinds of things that we see Peter and the other disciples doing in the first century. As you go this week, go with the assurance that the Holy Spirit is in you and will work through you as you attempt to do the work of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time that we've had. Help us that we might uh, see how we can apply this to our lives. Help us to realize who we are, what we are, only by the grace of God. But then, Father, help us to also realize what task we have to do. As we go this week, may we be good witnesses and good testimonies for the cause of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.